Hi, I'm Jo Litson. Welcome to The Thinking Traveller, a series that draws on the passions, expertise and knowledge of Academy Travel's tour leaders to bring a wealth of insight to your travels, one topic at a time. In this first programme, I'll be talking with Robert Veal, a cultural historian with over 20 years' experience leading tours to Italy. We'll be travelling to Venice, a unique city that ruled a Mediterranean trade empire for close to 1,000 years. Today, however, the tiny Venetian population finds itself struggling to cope with the staggering influx of visitors. Robert offers insights into the best times to visit and advice on how to discover the history of Venice without standing shoulder to shoulder with other tourists. So, Robert, when did you first travel to Italy? I was lucky enough to get a scholarship from the Italian government in 1986 between my third year and, and final year of study of Italian language at Sydney University. So that really opened my eyes, a young 21, 22-year-old, um, spending time in central Italy and visiting Rome, uh, Venice, and yeah, places in between. Uh, since then, I've been um, lucky, I guess, since about 1995 to have been able to travel to Italy um, every year, basically, for and spend one or two months there working. Mm-hmm. Wonderful place. I'll never grow tired of it. So what about Venice? Is that one of your favourite spots? Venice is absolutely um, one of my favourite spots. Uh, I'll never forget the first time um, I set eyes on the Grand Canal and it was a glistening afternoon and seeing people get about their lives by boat. I've always loved the water and I've loved um, boats, but also I love history and Venice is one of those places where you can look uh, at the skyline and it's almost identical to the way that it was 300 years ago. Compared, You can get out a Canaletto painting in one hand and look out uh, in the other and it's almost unchanged. And, of course, I just love that sense of history. Um, I also love the fact that it's a car-free environment and uh, what a delight that is coming from an Australian city. Absolutely. But you must have seen changes, though. Well, physically, as I guess I just mentioned, not really. I mean, one can still go to the same spots and see um, the same things that Canaletto saw. Um, in terms of the actual people in the city, absolutely. Um, it, yes, the population has declined. Um, there are still many Venetians that one can encounter, but that's increasingly rare. Many of the coffee shops are now owned by Chinese proprietors. That was certainly something that wasn't um, happening in the 1980s. Um, and, of course, you know, the number of visitors uh, has grown. I think, in particular, um, cheap flights uh, and weekend visitors would be the most noticeable thing. One sees an influx around uh, St Mark's Square at 3 o'clock in the afternoon on a Friday, and that, that stays till the Sunday. So, but, but the essential things are still there. You know, the Venetians are still the Venetians. It is a city with an unparalleled heritage of architecture and art in a miraculous setting um, with a great climate. And so some things never change and not even the number of tourists uh, that visit the city currently can alter that. So what are some of the the sites that you think people should go to outside those obvious ones everyone knows? Rule number one is don't rush it. Um, Italians generally, of course, like to take their time. You know, the art of living is very important in Italy. It's especially so in Venice. I think a great deal of the pleasure is simply in soaking up the atmosphere of the city, of having quiet moments to admire the light, to admire the view, uh, to set your mind free and wonder what this place might have been like 100, 200, 300, 500 years ago. Um, 
to contemplate, you know, the miraculous human achievement of constructing a city on what was basically a swamp or a set of sandbanks, a very um, uninviting place, I imagine, in the 6th century to found a city. Yet here we have one of the most beautiful um, cities on earth, I think. In order to do that, of course, one needs to escape um, the jostle of tourists, you know, the great numbers of tourists who congregate uh, the main sites of the city. We're fortunate in the sense that 90% of visitors to Venice visit about 10% of the city. So it's much, much more easy than you might think um, from recent newspaper reports to escape all of that and and to take in that moment to breathe and soak in all of that heritage. So, so you can really enjoy the city and not be shoulder to shoulder with lots of tourists? Yes, it takes... A forethought and planning uh, and following a few rules. Um, it, I think it's sad, I guess, that many visitors only see that side of the city. I believe that the average stay in Venice is, is less than one full day uh, and those visitors are, are likely to experience, I think, the very worst of the city in terms of crowds. Um, but more importantly, they're just not going to get the, that chance to breathe and relax and to think um, about what all this means. You know, it's uh, people tend to be crowding to get photos and you know, post them on Instagram and tell everybody that they're in Venice without actually uh, experiencing uh, the city in a terribly meaningful way. Uh, so, yes, yeah, but, but there are literally dozens of places, be you uh, an architecture lover, uh, an art lover, a food lover, a music lover, any of these sorts of cultural pursuits, uh, it's very easy uh, to escape those crowds. So is that the same for eating? Are there lots of little restaurants, be, you know, in smaller streets? Yes, there are. It's it's tricky. One, and Italians themselves will tell you that Venice is not the place to go for the very best Italian food, unfortunately, and that's because of, its, um, of the way it's been diluted. However, um, there are many districts of the city um, around the Castello Quarter or Santa Margarita or on the Giudecca, which is still largely um, local communities. They're largely free of tourists. Um, and Venetians, like all Italians, care very deeply about food. Uh, the, you know, one can talk for hours to an Italian about vegetables or fruit or fish um, and things like that, and, and, uh, uh, and one can learn quite a lot. So going to those places, follow your nose, look for places where the locals... But that requires... Maybe getting lost, going out, going out, you know, and maybe going to somewhere that's not in your guidebook, and uh, a little bit of self confidence, I guess, in that. In that but it, it's there. Um, ironically, um, Venice has some of the freshest vegetables, fruit and vegetables, uh, in Italy. That's because they're grown on the adjacent islands in the Venetian uh, lagoon, and they're shipped into the city every morning. If you go to the Rialto markets, you look for the word nostrano, um, meaning our local. Um, uh, local vegetables, uh, the sort of farm-to-table movement or zero kilometres, as it's called in Italy, movement um, is also very active. Uh, and so, yes, you think here's a city of uh, millions of tourists come here every year, the food's going to be terrible. Well, yes, it can be terrible, but not always. So can you give us um, an example of something different, you know, some of the things that the normal tourist perhaps wouldn't be seeing that you can take people to? Uh, absolutely. Um, there are myriad small sites. I mean, Venice was such a wealthy city and it was at the centre of a Mediterranean commercial empire for a thousand years. Um, so it's not just one city. You know, it's not some places you take people to, they're thin and you know very well that after a day or two, if you You've exhausted most of the um, possibilities. 
absolutely not the case for Venice. So, for example, um, in the Middle Ages and beyond, um, there were social organisations or confraternities called scuole. It doesn't mean school in the modern sense, but these were a bit like Masonic lodges. They did good works. They made sure you got a good burial. They looked after widows. They looked after your family if you were sick and things like that. These confraternities were important places. Um, if you were not a noble um, but were well off, you could ex- express your um, social status through these confraternities. And so one of the ways they did that, of course, is to get the best artists of the day uh, to come in and and to decorate their clubhouses. So there are five or six of these um, around the city and you can see absolutely superb Venetian Renaissance art in its original context with maybe four or five other people. Um, Some of the smaller islands are equally delightful. One of my favourites is San Lazzaro, (laughs) named after Lazarus. Um, That's because it was originally uh, a leper um, colony. Um, But in the 18th century, uh, the Venetian government decided to um, give the island to a community of Armenian monks who were fleeing uh, the Ottoman Turks, who um, who were oppressing them in general way, generally way. So... Weirdly, in the in the middle of the Venetian lagoon, there's a small island full of all of these spectacular pieces of Armenian heritage, old manuscript Bibles, some um, books written in, in uh, Arabic language, um, some of the historical records uh, of Armenia. It's 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 a very precious li- li- library. Lord Byron even went there, spent a lot of time there in the 18th century, um, escaping other troubles elsewhere. But Byron went there and wrote an Armenian English dictionary. I've never had cause to use it, but uh, (laughs) very typical of our Lord Byron. So there are all sorts of sites. It's also possible to get away from it all. Some of the smaller islands like San Francesco and others, these are the vegetable gardens of Venice. And weirdly, you know, you can take a 20-minute ferry ride across to one of these islands, get on a bicycle, cycle through fields of green vegetables and sit down and have lunch in a very isolated um, cafe or restaurant and even go for a swim uh, at the beach afterwards. So, yeah, I mean, the smaller islands are, are also delightful. I mean, pe- everyone's heard of Murano, for example, and that has thousands of people. That's not an island I'd recommend for a quiet time. Um, but there are hundreds of islands in the lagoon. So, yes, with research um, and a bit of organisation, it's it's remarkable what can be seen and done. So when would you advise that people go... I mean, obviously, different things are on show at different times of the year. And if you want a quiet time, that's probably different to if you want a festival. But but what do you think? Indeed. Um, Look, increasingly, I think, uh, as the climate becomes less predictable uh, and as the numbers that we've talked about uh, increase, and I think they will just continue to increase, uh, the so-called off-season, I think, is looking more and more attractive. Um, It really starts to get... um, warm, comfortably warm by March in Venice and doesn't really, really get cold until after Christmas. So I think any time in that period, um, you know, it's, you're not going to be too cold. Unlike Northern Europeans, Australians are not sun-starved. So a lot of the rhythm of tourism, particularly to Venice, is a centuries-old pattern uh, and it's born of a desire for the sunny south, you know, to get one's dose of vitamin B that one can't get in Scandinavia or northern Germany or or England, uh, for example. And, And so, you know, the patterns that you see are just simply a repetition of hundreds of years of patterns. Being Australians, we get plenty of sunshine. Um, so why not go in March? Yes, you'll need a, a jacket to rug up and a pair of gloves, but you'll be rewarded with very low crowds. 
culturally, of course, um, a lot happens. You know, if you love music, uh, and I certainly do, Venice has still a remarkable music scene of uh, the major opera house, of course, but many small concerts and things like that. These these things are really active uh, in the off-season, you know, the cold months. This is when people want to uh, uh, enjoy it. On the other hand, uh, of course, one of the biggest um, celebrations of culture and art in Venice is the Biennale, which runs from May through to November. Um, All of the art lovers tend to want to get there in the first month or so, so the first weekends in May are not a good time to go, but by about the third or fourth week in June... It's a nice little window um, of uh, of opportunity there. Alternatively, it's open right till November, so you could go in October, November. Amongst the Venetians, though, there's a saying um, that, you know, one should go to the Biennale in the first month because by the time you get to June or July, all of the electronic contraptions and installations and things would have broken down and are not working (laughs) properly, or the the video screens in the the, um, video works have stopped working. So so don't leave it too late um, in relation to the Biennale. But so many options, obviously. Many, 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 many options. Um, look, the other thing I think in relation to timing is certainly be aware of the weekends and avoid, um, if you can, the main sites in the weekends. I mentioned cheap flights, um, bringing people in. Um, Italians themselves, of course, love Venice and love to come to the city. Well, the time that they're not working is the weekend. Uh, so if you can avoid the centre of the city in the, on the um, Saturday and Sunday, that's particularly good. Visit those sites on the Monday, perhaps plan an excursion out of the city uh, on the weekend uh, um, when all the people are coming in. Uh, again, one sees news stories of the, of the bridge from the mainland to Venice being completely overcrowded um, with cars on a Sunday because um, 50,000 Italians have decided it would be nice to have a Sunday afternoon drive over to Venice and, and, and walk around. So, yeah, I'm not, certainly avoid that. And just on the sort of newsy front, what do you think about the cruise ships? I think they've been banned now, at least for coming into the Grand Canal. You've obviously seen them. What do I you have. It's, it's a striking um, visual effect, I have to say, once it, when one sees a huge, huge um, cruise ship come in uh, and completely dominate and tower over these um, centuries-old buildings that uh, line the canals. Uh, but, of course, it's dangerous. And uh, recently there have been a couple of incidents, one which was widely distributed on the news of a, of a ship uh, which uh, was coming into the, the cruise ship dock and, uh, you know, was buffeted by winds, I think, and, and crashed into another ship. It was, I mean, that, that made evening news all around the world shows you how um, significant a city is, uh, Venice is, I guess, in many people's minds. But there have been other incidents uh, since. And there's been a real tension, I think, um, in Italy between the need uh, to encourage tourism for the sake of the economy. It's it's a large sector of the economy. Uh, but to try and do so in the right way that doesn't destroy the charms, the very reason that people come to cities like Venice. So quite recently, um, an agreement has finally been reached among the various levels of government uh, in Italy that will see a tourist port created on the mainland. It's a few kilometres away from the historical centre of Venice, but more importantly, a route for the cruise ships to come into the lagoon that doesn't involve going um, you know, through uh, the Bacino, as the main harbour is um, called, and then down the Giudecca Canal. Uh, I think that's visually um, a lot better. It's also, from a heritage point of view, important because it, it takes away that risk of a ship losing control and just crashing into the, the, these buildings. 
In reality, however, um, passengers from cruise ships, I understand, represent only about 3 to 4% of the total visitors uh, to Venice. So moving cruise ships or banning them isn't actually going to change the overall number of visitors that much. But um, the, the outcry, I think, is as much from a heritage point of view as it is from a practical numbers management um, issue. Yeah, and maintaining that heritage is so crucial. Absolutely, absolutely. And and uh, as I said, I'm, I'm torn sometimes. It's, it's, it, it is a spectacular thing to watch a ship. I'll, I'll admit that. And, and it makes a great Instagram picture, you know, a, a, a laneway with a huge ship. But it is not what the city was designed for. And I think certainly for the nearly all Venetians, but for many, many visitors, it's not what they want as an experience of, of, of the city. And uh, the tension has been between, I guess, big businesses and cruise ship operators and the, the federal government uh, in Venice versus local interests. Um, so, so, you know, I, th- I think a nice balance has been struck now. Uh, it will take um, a few years, as always in Italy, for that uh, to have effect. Uh, and in the end, it won't alter the numbers that many, but the kind of experience that people have of the city will change for the better, I think. Lovely. Thank you for your time. My pleasure. Thank you. That concludes today's episode for The Thinking Traveller, a series brought to you by Academy Travel. To stay up to date with the latest conversations in this series, you can subscribe at Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you source your shows. For more information on Academy Travel's tour programme, to read other interesting articles written by their expert tour leaders, or to catch up with them in person at a public event around Australia, visit academytravel.com.au. Until next time, I'm Jo Litson. Thank you for your company.